0: We the people. We the people.
1: We the people of the United States.
2: We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union establish justice,
0: ensure domestic
2: tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We will ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America.
1: President of the United States may require the opinion in writing of the Principal Officer of each of the Executive Departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. United States Constitution, Article 2, Section 2. Paragraph 1, clauses 2 and 3. Welcome back, my friends. It is Constitution Thursday. Yes, I know it's Wednesday. But tomorrow we'll be at the Business to Business conference, and you know how I feel about missing Constitution Thursday. It feels like my week is not complete, so we move Thursday to Wednesday. And there you go. 565-DAVE, text machine is open, Five six five three two eight three. Email remains Show at clearchannel.com.
0: So that first bit there sounded like the cabinet.
1: Well, that's part of the arguments here is that uh, in setting up these executive departments, they knew that they knew that the president wasn't is uh, an executive. He's going to need help. He's well, going he's to need guys need
0: who specialize on in specific things. Right. right? What they did that's not what executives
1: want executives do. Yeah. You'll notice that there's nothing here that says the cabinet shall meet. Right. The second Thursday of each month, like the Politburo is this, or whatever. It's
0: like another one of those things where they say, all right, however you need to take care of this, just do it. Set up a postal system. Set up this.
1: In, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Okay. The They came from the English tradition where you had every minister of parliament was a minister of the crown. And all of the executive departments then were, you know, His Majesty's minister for sport, His Majesty's minister for the. For the exchequer, his majesty's whatever, his majesty's prime minister. In fact, when the prime minister is appointed, the very first thing the prime minister has to do is actually go get the approval of the sovereign and kiss their ring. And the sovereign says, yes, you all can right, be prime, minister, prime minister, minister or not. <laughs> now, it's somewhat of a formality now. But at the time, it but was in 1780, that was not the case. Yeah, it was uh, the, the king had some, some serious say in all those things. The, uh, the king also was surrounded by a thing called the Privy Council. And if you've ever paid any attention to England, you'll see English people have this remarkable, uh, I guess, characteristic is the best way to put it. You, any, anybody that's anybody in England has their name. So their name would be, you know, John Considine, comma. And then they'll have a bunch of initials after that. Right.
0: In fact, I've seen some of that. In, yeah. in
1: fact, I'm trying to think who it was the other day. Was it, uh, some rock star got an MBE the other day, which stands for Minish, Member of the British Empire, which is essentially a junior knighthood, I guess, is the best way to put it.
0: They're just making sure that they claim
1: him. He's one of ours. Well, no, it's it's <laughs> it, 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 it as some new, and then, and then you can add on to stuff. So you have M e- M P Minister of Parliament, and you okay. could have uh, you know MBE, Member of the British Ar- Empire, and then you have Grand... Knight's Cross of, of Oscar and St. George or whatever. And all these initials after stuff mean things. And within the British hierarchy system, depending on what order you belong to of awards determines which further awards you can get and how far up the chain you can move. And eventually, you know, you get your garter and you can wear your garter to the to the to the annual garter tea party and that's like, you know, you've achieved Nirvana for societal issues over there.
0: It sounds really complicated, Dave.
1: It really does, and it really sounds silly to us as Americans because one of the things that our framers said was
2: you can't no titles
1: of nobility because, well, I'd like to think that when they were arguing it, they said it was just silly, but really it offended their Republican sensibilities because these things become, well, if you have two if you people... Don't have it. If you don't have it. If you don't have it, you're on the outside. If you have two people who are otherwise equal in all forms and one just happens to have a knighthood and the other doesn't, guess which one gets the job? Right. Even though the other guy might actually
0: be better. Right. And we've got stuff that kind of wound up becoming that anyway. Like, did you go to an Ivy League college? Did you belong to a secret society? And it's, it's that that's interesting because one of the things that the British have. Because I think people seek out that stuff anyway. People seek out ways to make themselves elite. In many ways and one of
1: the pres- one of the most precious initials you can get in England is PC it stands for Privy Councillor and that means you are at the king's table you are an advisor to the king the king seeks you out for what your opinion is
0: on whatever on your a matter. thing is
1: and if you have that PC after you done not matter how many initials you have but if you've got that PC you're in a special class and it was this that they looked at when they were when they were debating this executive You know, and his, his assistants and his office, and they knew he was going to have to form offices. He was going to have to have a postal guy. Right. He was going to have to have a treasury guy. He was going to have to have these things that, that controlled these various executive departments that he would then oversee. But they were very cautious about not making it a cabinet because they didn't want it to seem like it was a privy council. In many ways, what has become the cabinet today is a, an unfortunate reaction to time and separation of getting away from why we didn't do it that way. Now we have this idea, and of course the uh, presidents vary this. I mean, our current president, I was trying to remember the other day, someone said about the fact he hadn't had a a cabinet meeting in years. You know, why even have one? Really? Other presidents were known to
0: have them fairly regularly, if not weekly. Um, I would think you would want to, though. I mean, like... Uh, doesn't it doesn't it behoove you to have a guy that like his job is to know about the one thing, you know? I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess when I think of like really good managers, that's what I think of, you know, as the guy, you know, the guy who's there and he's got the big ideas and stuff like that and is looking at the big picture of everything, but when it comes to you know, he's he's not the guy that's micromanaging things. Mm-hmm. He's got somebody else who oversees this department or whatever and kind All of so, updates him.
1: So step back for a second and think about that. Think about coming out of the PC, the Privy Council element which is where, theoretically, the king gets together at his round table, uh-huh. or whatever shape it might be, right. or He's with a group king. of PCs or whoever, Sit at the and the says, table. tell me, what do you think I should do? And they all give him their advice. Right. And, of course, that advice is, and always was, influenced by several things. Number one, potential gain to the person in question. Kind of What kind of advice are you going to give to the king about a bill that uh, I don't know? If you're in farming, and he wants to know about a bill that's going to tax farming, what kind of advice are you going to give him? You're going to say, "Don't do that."
0: That's, yeah, that's tax farming
1: is a terrible idea, in my fact, lord. In fact, my lord, what you, my your highness, what you should do is is pass a bill that rewards farming.
0: Yes, there you go. That's better.
1: And who knows what kind of advice is going on here? Who knows what's going on in there? The, um, the difficulty with a, with a cabinet and, and what you say is a management standpoint. It's, look, what man, what successful manager doesn't have that meeting on a fairly regular basis saying, okay, let's, let's all make sure we're on the same page. The problem is we're not really talking so much about a manager here in the sense of, you know, a, a company trying to achieve a goal as much as we are a political element of this. And so what happens when you surround yourself with people who you've personally chosen? and who in some cases may require Senate approval, but in some cases may not, the National Security Advisor does not require Senate approval. Would that not be the most critical, one of the most critical positions, it, quote, in the Cabinet, around the table of the privy counselors of the President? And yet nobody in Congress has any say over who that person is. They can whine about it, but they don't have to say Secretary of Treasury, we got a little bit of say in that. Probably primarily, primarily because they set that up. They said, well, "We want you to manage this. We'll oversee that." But these advisors then could become very simply political
0: hacks. But aren't
1: they really
0: supposed to be kind of just people that uh, who, whose whose opinions the president trusts uh, on on specific matters? Like if the president says, "You're the kind of guy." With the kind of ideas that I that I appreciate when it comes to the running of this particular thing, right? I'm with you. You know, I, you're you, absolutely right. You're my advisor on sporks and corks. I, you know, there's other guys out there who do both sporks and corks, but but you are the guy who knows about sporks and corks the way that I want someone who knows about. Them what to happens, be. John, if you don't
1: like that guy personally? You, the, the guy that's the sporks and corks guy, the best guy for that, right? Is somebody that's it's Roger.
0: So after you kill that guy, you get the other guy. You get the guy that you like that does sports and corks. Why? Why do you go to the next guy? Well, I don't know. See, I don't, I, I feel like See, I in wouldn't. theory, you know what I mean. We I, all think that exactly. don't exactly. Yeah, I, but I, that I, ignores human nature. That's true. That's absolutely true. I mean, if but they, if there is a guy that you just can't stand working with or whatever, but you know he's the best at what he does or she does.
1: Human nature is yeah. such that that person is not going to be chosen because they're the best person. Lee Iacocca would be the guy to put in charge of cars, right? Right. We can put him in charge of cars. (laughs) I like him. But it would be a great job because it pays, you know, $200,000 a year to put into someone who maybe um, really delivered an important set of votes for you or an important set of uh, supported a certain policy a certain way. You see what I'm saying here?
0: So there's a, what you're saying is there's a concern that, that these positions are just tokens to be handed out. There's
1: not even that concern anymore. Now it's, it's pretty much the way it is. Really? Abraham Lincoln, who of course Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is not one of my favorite writers, but she wrote her book, her famous book, Team of Rivals, which the book Lincoln was based upon, was one of the, was noted for putting people in his, in his cabinet whom he did not like and did not like him. But he needed their particular skills and their particular or.
0: (laughs) So you're saying he did it right. In
1: one case. I don't even know about that. Politics even entered in that because in some cases he was just trying to keep them out of other
0: departments where they were creating problems. Sam Chase is a great example of that. Trying to bridge gaps or something like that. Oh, look what I did with this guy. You know how I feel about him. But I put him in here because I need your help with this. Right. Or I needed to keep him away from over there. Yeah. And so this table becomes.
1: It's kind of messed uh, up. It's very messed up in a lot of ways and that's what the framers were so afraid of they were afraid of it becoming that privy council they were afraid of it becoming political patronage right. in the sense of well this is going to be that so what can we
0: do to limit that well well that's a good question because i i mean you, you you want the you want the president to be able to to get people that kind of align with his idea of how he wants to run stuff right i mean he is the president mm-hmm. but at the same time You don't want all of that that we just talked about. So you you limit it. You say, okay, you can have advisors.
1: You can require from them in writing their opinions about subjects that affect their department at at whatever intervals you, there's no real intervals you set up upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices. And notice by doing it in writing, what does that cause? In writing now, it's written down. Oh, Somebody can see what they so said. So there's
0: a record of there's it.
1: There's no behind-the-scenes advice. Now, there's you ways around that. You can go back and look that. at
0: it later and say, this is, this is what the guy said to do. This is what he advised. Or you know, why
1: he decided to do
0: that or what right. he
1: actually said. And that, of course, is is problematic. And, of course, we've gotten away from that, haven't we? We've gone to the cabinet meetings. We've gone to the the idea of having people sitting, sitting around a table, the movie Dave, you know, what's going on? It's 100th cabinet meeting, 100th cabinet meeting, and... You know, we're going to put the commerce secretary in his place because we're going to pay for bad ways to, to subsidize American tourism. You know, it, it, it that movie is really instructive in a lot of ways, mm. but it's that, that element of now we're sitting around a table. Now, theoretically, somebody is taking minutes. Have you ever seen minutes of a, a cabinet meeting?
0: No, but I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I've never sought them out. Right.
1: Try sometime.
0: You can't get them. If you can, they're heavily
1: redacted and. Classified. Interesting. Um, and so these, this council then becomes important. It, it, the president needs the advice because every man needs advice. And, and again, keep in mind that people who are writing this know that George Washington could probably make all the decisions himself. They know that. But they also know that he's not going to be president forever.
0: Right. And that's
1: really the problem. They're really writing this document for whoever is the next guy and the next guy after that and hopefully the next 40 or 50 guys after that, if not 150 guys after that. But you can see it kind of got off rails pretty quick. It's Afternoons Live, Constitution Thursday, 565 is the text machine Stay with us back right after this. Afternoons live, KFIV, KWSX, I Heart Radio. It's Constitution Thursday on a Wednesday. Going to be at the Biz2Biz uh, to Biz conference tomorrow, so wedging this in now where we head out that direction tomorrow. Talking about the um, the opinions clause in the Constitution. This has also created some, some blowback in some other areas here, which you, if you read this very carefully, you'll notice that, nowhere in here does it imply that congress can say hey what did you tell him in writing now it's written down but congress really doesn't have the right to say well that's br- you-
0: not it's not really in the constitution that way
1: and this is where the executive you know privilege thing comes in in many ways well i'm not going to tell you what he told me and in some ways that makes sense john because if you are a person who is tasked with giving advice to the executive And you know that everything
0: you advise this person is going to be second-guessed by Congress. That's kind of going to limit some of the advice that you give, maybe. Bingo. Maybe you have a really great idea or something, but you're afraid of what people will think about it, and so you keep mum on it. Or you just don't put it in writing. Which would make you kind of a less effective advisor, I think.
1: So there is some element to that, and that's sometimes why the president pulls the executive privilege card and says, no, you you can't see those documents. They're not coming out. The... The uh, the army, navy, and air force, marines not not subject to that, and that's why you'll see civilian control of the military. Of course, is very endemic to our nature. I mean, it's who we are, but it can get very frustrating when you're when you've got military people on the Capitol Hill to testify to Congress about you know is, wh- why are there so many military people on Guam? It's going to tip over, and you just want to shake your head and go, oh. but they they're in charge of the military. And so they don't have that limitation. They don't have those those situations in there. And it becomes an issue of advice to the president, good advice to the president. And yet at the same time, and this I think was the most important element that the framers were looking for in this, John. The same time, there's no implication here that the president can say, i got bad advice. You know, we screwed up and you know, carpet bombed London, but... It was Ted's fault. He gave me bad advice. I mean, he can fire Ted if he wants, but the buck still stops with him. He's still the one that's going to have to answer to Congress. Well, why did we carpet bomb London? Yeah, if it was bad advice, why did you take it? Now, if Congress is willing to accept that, that excuse, that's one thing. But really, how likely is it that Congress is going to accept the excuse of bad advice from an advisor? I mean, can you think of any element in, in our history where we ever have? No. There have been multiple times where advisors have given advice to the president that we're not necessarily privy to, or Congress isn't necessarily privy to. It seems on the surface of it to us to be angeringly bad advice. Why would you do that? But there is a consideration here that hasn't always entered into our thought processes, I guess. And that is... The executive has a different view of things than maybe necessarily you or I do. I'm not talking about politically. Now, I've said this before about governments when they change. I I don't really care what a candidate says they're going to do when they get into office about things like open government, closing Gitmo, changing. They're not going to. Because the instant they're in office, all of a sudden they're going to get all the information that they don't have right now that says... Oh, <laughs> that's why we're doing. I guess that. we can't
0: really do that. That can way. can we? Ah, yeah. I've always thought. I've always thought that there's some element of that where you know you get in. You once you get high enough up the chain or whatever, all of a sudden you are now privy to all this information that you didn't have before, and it changes things.
1: And it clearly has. I mean, look at the current president. The current right. president ran on, "We're not going to spy on American citizens. We're going to close Gitmo. We're going to win the war in Afghanistan."
0: Right. None of those things,
1: none of those things have, have not only have none of those things happened into his second term, but you could rationally argue that all three of them have gotten if more than than when he took over. Yeah. So what is it that changed? Now, there may be some political elements to that or not. It really wouldn't have mattered who who's in there. Uh, there's a lot of people that say, well, if Mitt Romney had been elected. This would have stopped. No, it wouldn't have the FISA court. Do you know, when the FISA court opened, my friends, think about this for just a minute. Under which president was the FISA court incorporated and, and started doing its oh, we gotta do this foreign intelligence surveillance operations and we need to make sure that we're not wiretapping Americans and blah blah blah. Under which presidency was that court formed? Was it Obama? Bush? Clinton? Bush? Which of those ones makes sense? You asked ninety nine people, hundred people on the street, and you know what ninety nine are gonna tell you? What? W. Bush. After 9-11, we had to do this, right? But it was Clinton? It was not Clinton. In point of fact, it was Jimmy Carter. Really? James Earl Carter. On 1978, when Congress said,
0: eh, we might want to start looking at some of this stuff. So that was around, So it's been around for a long time, is what you're saying?
1: It's been around for a hugely long time. Somebody advised the president, saying, um, Congress, we need to do this. Somebody advised the president, we need to do this. And since 1978, the FISA court has been operating. Now, the parameters were changed after 2011, 2001, sorry. The parameters of what the FISA court was looking at was changed. But the court itself, the actual intel operation, had been going on since 1978. We didn't know that per se, and we sure didn't know that NSA was seizing 100 million records a day. Now we know. What are we going to do about it? That's the real question. And who advised the president that this was okay? And why did the president take that advice? Sometimes presidents get advice that on the surface of it, to us, seems flawed. One of the things I appreciate about our 38th president is that he entered the office under a great deal of, well, let's just call it what it was, uh, sarcastic disbelief in a lot of ways. He endeared himself to most of America, not through his policies but by falling down Air Force's one stairs, Gerald Ford. Uh famously famously mocked by Chevy Chase for many years. In fact, even in the uh the tops uh, the um, hot shots movie, there's, yeah. there's there's a famous scene where the 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 living ex-presidents are beating the crap out of each other with shovels and falling accidentally and Ford just stands there until everybody gets is done and then he just falls down. <laughs> Gerald Ford was many things. he didn't set out to be president, and he approached the office in a way that was somewhat different, set aside because of circumstances. one of the things I come I've come to appreciate about him in as I've moved on in life is his barefaced honesty in that office and on a certain date which september eighth nineteen seventy four He gave a press, well, a statement from the White House office in which he pardoned, which is the next thing we're going to get to here, Richard Nixon. And a lot of people have given him flack for that four years. Well, people to this day, how could you pardon Richard Nixon? But one of the things he says in his speech is, I was advised, and I concur with that advice, that this is the proper course to make. We don't know who gave him that advice. We don't know what they said to him. But in retrospective history, you'd have to say it was right. Because what he goes on to explain in that nine-minute speech, we always hear the we always hear the one minute. I hear, therefore, pardon Richard Nixon for any crimes. he's. We don't listen to the other eight minutes of it. Maybe sometime we should. It's just a thought. It's half past 565-DAY, five, five, 565-3283. Five, five, Stay with us. Back right after this. Welcome back. Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX. I feel like I can do this now, John. Welcome back. It's Afternoons Live. And the 5.30 Love. Group. <laughs> it's all about Michael McDonald tonight. That That's kind of a broken heart. Group, huh? It's because I beat her with the spoon. <laughs> she decided to leave. Welcome back, my friends. 5.65 Dave. Five six five. Talking about two clauses in Article 2, Section 2, the Opinions Clause and the Pardon Clause. The Pardon Clause was put in. in They wanted the executive to have the ability to pardon people. You'll notice that they said not for impeachment, though. You can't pardon anybody that's been impeached. Which, of course, brings up this Nixon thing. The articles of impeachment were almost passed, but not quite. And he resigned. He resigned before... So he wasn't technically impeached. wasn't technically impeached, although you have to kind of... You have to kind of conclude that had it gone to trial, he would have been. I mean, I really. Right. How are you going to survive that? But the problem is, of course, John, that an impeachment is not a criminal trial. It's a constitutional function to remove someone from an office has this person committed high crimes and treason worthy of being impeached if he has get him out of office but that is not a criminal trial and if you'll think back to well you probably don't remember but if you those of you will think back to watergate you'll recall that there were a lot of crimes here potentially right breaking an entry you had you know cover-ups you had and how much of it was done at the behest of the president himself. How much did he know and when did he know it? And 18 minutes of on a tape is you know the the smoking uh, one of my favorite Doonesbury cartoons of that era was the problem with it was there was just no smoking gun. It was just not that one piece that would just absolutely tie Nixon to everything and one of the cartoons is these two congressmen talking to each other and gosh if we could just find that smoking gun the other one says yeah if you just knock over a liquor store or something then we'd have him Which is kind of uh, humorous, you know, 40 or 50 years on. But at the time, it seemed uh, a little edgy out there. The presidents, uh, of course, can use their pardons. There's two ways they can do that. They can use a pardon. It's an executive order vacating a conviction. Uh, Commutation is a mitigation of a sentence. They can, uh, you know, reduce sentences or something like that. I was actually a little surprised uh, at, at how little, I guess that's not really the right word, You'd think there'd be a lot more of these, but President Obama, is, he's used it, but not as much as you might think. Um, and some of these things seem, he's got a guy he pardoned here because he violated a liquor law back in 1960. Who could argue? I mean, I don't know right. what the particulars of the case were. But probably who cares? Um, little things like that. And it's, it's there's nothing here that just jumps off the page and says, yeah, this Axe murder killed 16 people and the president pardoned him. Presidential pardons have very rarely been used to, to free, you know, really hardened issues because there's a political price to be paid. Uh, President Clinton, as you may recall, uh, pardoned some uh, Puerto Rican terrorists and it really, it, it came into play in his wife's political campaigns downstream from that. Well, what did you get out of this? Because you're the one with the ties there and it, it, it came into there. But really, when you're talking about presidential pardons, the, uh, the grand kahuna, you will, if you will, is the, is the pardon of Richard Nixon, issued on September 8th, 1974. Now, I have, I have pared this down from nine minutes to three. But here's th- I just want you to listen to this. I want you to hear President Ford as he sat in that office. And I've cut out the parts at the beginning. And I, I really wish you would go listen to this, where he talks about, look, this isn't where I expected to be in life. I mean, this is, I have asked for your help before. I'm asking for your help in prayers again. I'm telling you, he, he spends a lot of time talking about the fact that, look, I might be wrong. But this is my best judgment on my on the basis of my advice and my own conscience. And, and I just wish we wouldn't forget that about that man. He was a, you know, he's, he's never going to go down in history as being a great president because of the circumstances. But maybe if we paid a little more of attention to what he had to say, it might change that. Uh, here is uh, Gerald Ford from September 8th, 1974.
2: I have been advised and I am compelled to conclude that many months and perhaps more years will have to pass before Richard Nixon could obtain a fair trial by jury in any jurisdiction of the United States under governing decisions of the Supreme Court. But... It is not the ultimate fate of Richard Nixon that most concerns me, though surely it deeply troubles every decent and every compassionate person. My concern is the immediate future of this great country. conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. I do believe that the buck stops here that I cannot rely upon public opinion polls to tell me what is right. I do believe that right makes might, and that if I am wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant <clears throat> to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article II, Section Two of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, A full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974.
1: That's President Gerald Ford on September 8th, 1974. It, um, it's kind of gone down in our collective conscience that Gerald Ford made a mistake and that pardoning Nixon was a political payback,
0: those sorts of things. I 100% see why he did it, though. And he made it very clear. He basically was saying, look, people, we have more important things to worry about. Let's just put this to bed and move on as a country, right? And I,
1: and I will tell you this, John, you're absolutely right, and I will tell you this. If you watch the full nine minutes of that speech... yeah. You will have no doubt in your mind. But that it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And that's the presidential use of power. He did make one in his speech. He actually uh, did make a misstatement. He said 20 July, which, of course, was famous at that point because that was the day we landed on the moon. He actually meant 20 January, which actually written in there, which was the day that Nixon went into office. So it basically covered the entire period that he was in the office um, as well. So it's quarter till 565, Dave, 565-3283. Stay with us. Back right after Other than Gerald Ford, John, Abraham Lincoln would have been, I guess, most famous for his pardons. We don't really think of him in those terms, but uh, virtually every day he was presented as a, as president. He was virtually every day presented with request pardons from soldiers who had deserted and were scheduled to be shot. And it was, uh, it was an interesting story that's told about him about the one day that he took the pardon and put it in a, in a little mail slot thing behind at his desk and he'd he'd take him and put him in a pigeon hole and uh, the person that was there asking for the pardon was a little concerned about the fact that (laughs) you just put it in your hole, you're not going to act on, you know, his you're not going to sign off on his warrant to to get him shot yeah, I just put it up there and if it it ever wanders back to my desk again, I'll sign it and have him shot, but if not then we won't worry about it, will we? and uh, by the way your son will be way older than Methuselah if he lives longer than than, than it takes for that thing to fall on my desk. And they, they they talked about him doing that on a fairly huh. regular basis. Uh, those pardons would have been difficult because you got you got military people saying, oh, army discipline." I, I I can't imagine what he had to go through. Nixon's pardon from Ford is something that I've lived my whole life with believing a certain thing about. With today, today is the first time in my life. This morning, when I got, it's the first time I've ever listened to the entire nine minute speech. And I've completely reversed my opinion about President Ford's pardon. Really? He not only was right, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And maybe it was time for us as a nation to kind of step back and go, he took it upon, and he said, it's my decision. Uh, the buck stops
0: here. Yeah, and, and, and he, there was kind of some element of that where it, was, where it was basically like, I'm the only guy that can do this, which means I, I should do this. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and basically, he'll take the blame for it. He'll take one for the team. Chief Justice Marshall wrote somewhat later in a case that um,
1: a pardon is an act of grace. And I don't have to tell those of you that are Christians, particularly those of you not practicing CDD, uh, the definition of grace. He wrote that a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of laws which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment the law inflicts for a crime he has committed. It is private, though official, act of the executive magistrate. Now, the purpose, of course, of the pardon power is to focus on public policy purposes, which is exactly what Gerald Ford did. It was not in the best interest of this country to put Nixon on trial. Do you realize how that trial would have gone? Nixon was... uh, his attorneys would have said, this is an unfair trial. This, it, it would have dragged on for you. We'd still probably be arguing the appeals of that case. It was the right thing to do. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in 1927, a pardon in our days is not a private act of grace from an individual happening to possess power. It is part of the constitutional scheme. The president swore to uphold, defend, protect the Constitution and I don't think you could argue that that's not what Gerald Ford did and I gained a lot of respect for him today and all it took was eight minutes more of my time than I'd been willing to give him for 40 years. And
0: that's that's what I think is so interesting about it is that whether you feel like he did the right thing or the wrong thing, he ended it. It's over for you either way and you get to move on to other stuff. And that's what
1: he wanted. It's Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX Constitution Thursday back in 60 seconds. Well, it puts the wraps on Constitution Thursday. I was gonna put a bonus thing in the podcast. I was gonna put the whole speech in there, but you know what? You guys gotta do some work too. It's not that hard to find. Just Google, go look it, go look it up. Yeah. It's not. It's really not that far to hard to find out there. And watch the. It's nine minutes well spent, especially if you're from my generation. It will change how you look at life and and what has gone on. Uh, Joe says he loves the Doobie Brother bumper and Constitution Wednesday. Cool, right on. So there you go. Tomorrow. Uh, out at the biz to biz conference out at uh, Modesto Center Plaza. So we won't actually be here in the studio, but uh, tune in. We always have a great time when we're out there, and swing on by if you can. It's great stuff. And Anyway, I always have a great time, though I'm hacking my lungs out right, right now. Huh. So John beat me in shooting. Next shooting night's coming up uh, July 16th, Tuesday, July 16th. Circle your calendars now. Be there or Don't complain about it. Don't want to hear any more complaints. You know about it. So there you go. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there, so don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave. That's John. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow for a Thursday episode of Afternoons Live at Business to Business Conference episode of Afternoons Live with Dave and John right here on KFIV 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX 1280 AM Stockton. Of course, everywhere in the world via the iHeartRadio app on your smartphone. Stay tuned. Rusty Humphreys is next. Have a great night, everybody. See you tomorrow.
2: Afternoon's Live is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for Clear Channel Media and Entertainment
1: Modesto.